define sustainability, odds are your definition is completely different from the next person's. Appalachian State University's Director of Sustainability, Dr. Lee Ball, sits down with his guests to explore the many ways in which sustainability affects our lives. This is Find Your Sustainability. Well, thanks so much for being with me here today. I am with Gina McCarthy, the former head of the Environmental Protection Agency. And I'm so excited to have a conversation with you about um, you know, your work and your history. And, and I, I've got some prepared questions, and I'm just going to go ahead and launch into it. I'm really interested in people's stories. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your story that kind of led you to value sustainability and kind of get on the career path that you chose. Well, Lee, let me, let me try to explain it. But before I do, just let me thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's really exciting to be part of the Energy Summit. I can't tell you how impressed I am with the sustainability program here, the commitment of this university. And this is just about one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. So all in all, yeah. <laughs> invite me back again because okay. uh, it is quite amazing. You know, I, I don't know. My story may be a little bit simplistic for folks, but, you know, I grew up at a time when, you know, pollution was everywhere. It was not, you know, something that anticipated 30 years in the future. We were just inundated it. When I grew up, I lived in the Boston area where I still live, and Boston Harbor was just where all the sewer went, the sewage water went. It was uh, um, not a place that you could swim, Frankly, as a kid, I did, but that's because my family was pretty limited in means, and that was where we went. But you shouldn't have. (laughs) You know, after a period of time, they'd tell you, you better get some shots if you fell in. And we had smokestacks spewing black smoke. We had Love Canal happening. We had the Cuyahoga River on fire. You know, it was at a time when people were outside all the time. There were very few attractions inside. And so I had a a natural connection to the outside world and visual clues that we were messing it up. (laughs) And so I really started my sort of journey after undergraduate school where I did a degree in social anthropology and loved it. I always tell people that learning about primitive cultures has been most helpful in the work in government. Um, That's always helpful, especially with legislators in Congress. Uh, But, uh, you know, most importantly, I, I started to discover my interest in public health, and I went to school in public health and environmental protection, and and I ended up getting a local job in my own hometown to be the health agent there. And at that point in time, we discovered a couple of hazardous waste sites. We had some TCE contamination in a well. All of the things that were playing out at the federal level started to play out at the local level. And I just got engaged and involved and eventually was asked whether I wanted to work at the state. And I did. I kept getting asked to do different and interesting things. And and I think I always treated this as a very, uh, very human story, uh, a very sort of fundamental core need and value that everybody in the United States would share if you just took the time to explain what the risk was, what you see, and if you had solutions to offer that people could embrace. And and over time, I think that's been the key to, to at least my success is to never forget to explain what I do. 
and why it's important and to get all voices to the table to participate in what the solutions are that they can embrace and how quickly. That's what government does. That's what this country has always done as we've built the strongest economy in the world on a foundation of the strongest sets of environmental protections in the world. And I'm pretty proud of that, at least for being part of it. Did you find that um, with your work, when you connected these issues with people, that it really helped um, have decision makers maybe give them a chance to understand maybe more deeply instead of trying to make an argument for the environment? What I found was that how I came into this was through a public health lens, and I see agencies like EPA as being a public health agency. We sort of measure ourselves, uh, not in birds and bunnies, uh, which I love. I love birds, Mm -hmm. I love bunnies, so nobody think otherwise, but it's just not what EPA does. We do public health protections like clean air and clean water. We measure ourselves in lives saved. You know, asthma attacks prevented, contamination that didn't cause health impacts in in kids when they drink the water. Mm -hmm. That's my measures of success. And they're very visceral to people. You can make them understand that by explaining what you do. Uh, The further you get away, the more difficult the the challenge is. And and what I mean by farther away is is less able to clearly articulate the risk to people and why it matters to them and their families. And the interesting thing is, as, as I think we all know as people, we don't like to embrace challenges that we can't fix. We would rather deny them until something's available. It's sort of a natural instinct. And so I think the challenge for us when you move to things like climate change is that it is it has always been presented as far away as about polar bears, not people. Um, it's presented in probabilities and statistics when the rest of the world actually think that scientists state facts, mm-hmm. not probabilities. Right. And so the communication challenge has been big. It's such a long-term issue that it goes beyond electoral cycles. So you have the trouble of asking a politician to do something that won't benefit anybody until after they're well out of office. And then you have real uh, early on, our challenge was that we were trying to drive solutions rather than knowing we had solutions on the table. So I've been doing this for 30 years. It was a hard slog for so many years, which is what's very exciting about today. Because you can talk about sustainability not just as a goal but as actions. This university shows that you can be sustainable and live sustainably and how much it saves you in terms of money. That's when solutions take off. That's when it's no longer about what regulation do we need, but who's the smartest investor that's going to catch that new wave of innovation that's going to make more money down the pike. And as a wonderful you, you know, American capitalist, I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the goal line for us. We are so close to being able to really continue to branch forward. But uh, it's, it's going to take a lot of effort to, to move from small communities and campuses to get a broader acknowledgement that the solutions we need are on the table. Right, right. Yeah, and we, we find ourselves in this leadership role and, you know, through the dissemination of, um, I think, responsible knowledge and knowledge for good 
Yeah, I think that's a big part of our role at the university. Um, so could you tell me what it was like to run the EPA? I can imagine. <laughs> uh, a lot of sleepless nights. Um, it's a, it's an agency of about uh, 15,000 people, maybe a little bit more. Um, and we have, uh, you know, I was in Washington. Um, fortunately, I had the experience of four years as the acting administrator um, overseeing the air and climate programs. And so I kind of got a good feel for the agency because prior to that, I only worked at state and local governments. And so it was a big, you know, a big leap for me to go to Washington and tackle this. But I had those four, that four years of experience. And then the president asked me if I would uh, really work the next four uh, in his second term um, to try to advance a, a number of issues. But for him and for me, it was most importantly trying to make progress on climate, which we, we and he certainly felt, and I agreed with him, that there wasn't enough progress made when there was so much opportunity. But what the president did really during his first term was, was to invest a lot of money through the Department of Energy and others in, in innovation and new technologies that really provided fruit uh, to, in the second term. It really opened up opportunities for new technologies to shine, which is for EPA and for me as the administrator, it gave me the opportunity to have solutions that I could, through regulation, make sure were available to everybody and do it in a way that would require, you know, reasonable progress using already well-defined solutions. And that's when you can, can really make progress. Uh, and so I spent, you know, a lot of time getting to understand the breadth of the agency, certainly doing a lot more than climate work, making, I think, good progress on water and a new, a new uh, piece of legislation on toxics, which was very exciting, the first bill we've ever had that, that was bipartisan, strongly bipartisan, in many years that was focused on an environmental issue. Um, and I spent time in the regions, you know, the, we have 10 regions and all of them have unique challenges where they work with their, their regional states uh, to actually make sure that states are implementing the federal laws as they're supposed to and, and managing the duties that we support them to do uh, to make sure that everybody is, is living up to at least federal standards. Um, and I spent a lot of time trying to work with the agency also to give it a, a more personal face outside because the federal government is, for the most part, something that people don't relate to. They know it exists and they pay a lot of taxes to make sure it exists and they never quite see what it does. You know, they don't connect you know, new roads with the Department of Transportation. They just see their own little, you know, uh, uh, construction going on in their local area, and they don't always realize that it's funded and supported by the federal government and programs. And, and so they don't see where that money goes for. And EPA is so distant from many, many rural areas in particular because we do a lot of work in urban areas because that's where the bigger health implications lie, and we have very little visibility. So I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that the regions were supported in their efforts to work with states and build up a stronger relationship, and that communities that have been left behind, 
you know, the communities like what we call environmental justice communities, the ones that really haven't benefited as much from the overall national average of how well we've done to reduce air pollution, you know, they're the ones that need a stronger voice and, and need the federal government to be there, even if the state government isn't focusing their attention there. It has to be somebody paying attention to make sure the benefits of what we do actually reach everyone. So I spent a lot of time trying to get EPA out into the community, working with people who have been left behind, minorities, low-income areas, and trying to form a stronger relationship with rural areas where we don't tend to have the visibility that we have in the urban areas. I spend a lot of time thinking about the disconnect between knowledge and practice. We have a lot of knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to um, uh, ideas related to solving sustainability problems, whether it's with water or air pollution. You spend a lot of time, you know, with your career being very solution oriented, you know, express that real, really well. Could you speak a little more about that disconnect? Because it's something that that, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about trying to, you know, how do we, how do we get around that? We've had, you know, we've had knowledge, you know, related to these issues since the 60s and 70s, and we're still dealing with a lot of those same problems. We have the knowledge, but why and how can we, you know, turn them into practice using practical solutions? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know whether there's any trick to this, and I, I really appreciate the fact that you you recognize that I'm sort of an implementation person. I don't want to do the best thing that nobody will actually do. Do you know what I mean? Uh, there's, there's too many people who are looking for the ideal, who try to translate knowledge directly into how people should behave. You just can't do it that way. That's not how people operate, and it's not how the government in the United States operates. Everything that you do to try to make um, large change happen, even that you know is extraordinarily good for people, for their pocketbooks as well as their health and the health of the overall planet, you, you have to work hard for a lot of years to make that happen. Uh, you have to earn people's trust. Um, I, had a, uh, I worked for somebody once uh, in Massachusetts who I, I grew to have tremendous respect for. He was a state legislator for 17 years, and he came to, to run the agency. And he used to ask me two things. I was his undersecretary. I oversaw policy throughout the state for everything from our, our normal pollution issues to, to fish and wildlife. I mean, I, I did it all, right? And I was the last stop before big things happened. And, and, and he used to ask me two questions. First, he'd say, Gina, is, that the, is this the right thing? to do. And by that he meant, is this really following what we understand for the science and the law? Is this really going to be defensible? Is this what we think we should be doing as people who care about these issues as well as public servants who have taken an oath to do these things? But the second thing he used to ask me, and it annoyed me originally, but I grew into understanding why. He asked me, so Gina, who's standing with me? Because he understood what I didn't then get, which was that, that in the United States, it's a, it's a government of, by, and for the people. You cannot be as good as you 
is want to be, and as knowledgeable as you are, a benevolent dictator. It takes bringing people with you because people have a voice. They are the only ones that are going to carry it in the end of the day, not the politicians. Individuals who embrace what, what the challenge is in the solutions that you offer them. And so, so it, we're purposely designed to be a stable government, to move slowly and deliberately. And, and so you have to understand that knowledge doesn't immediately translate to change. That if you're looking at being a good policy person, you're identifying a couple of things. Who, who the first movers and shakers are, who's going to join you, how you do outreach beyond that, who the people are that are going to be against it. And if you do like I do, you bring every single one of them to your table. You honestly tell them how you view the facts, what you think the upsides and downsides are, and then you shut up and you listen to them. Because I have always found it's not just wrong, but it's inaccurate to put white hats and black hats on anybody. You know, I have had some great friends who work in industry in the private sector who have allowed me to have tremendous success in uh, adjusting policies and regulations to be more manageable and more reasonable and get better results than I ever would have if I didn't open up my ears and give them credit for sharing the same core values I have, but just seeing the challenge differently and the solutions differently. So if you fail to bring every voice to the table, you will miss the flavor and texture of what you're supposed to bring to your job as a public servant, which is not to serve my friends and people who agree that I'm the smartest person in the world, but those who challenge you and those you've never met before, but without which their support Will, will make whatever you do, as brilliant as it is, fall flat on its face. And I've seen that. I've seen things fall flat on, the, on their face. Thankfully, not most of the things that I've done, but that usually happens when people fail to listen and fail to understand, at least in government, that you're not working for yourself. You're working for the people, and they have the final say. That's why we decided to um, make the theme of this year's Appalachian Energy Summit perspectives, policy, and practice, because we feel like that we need everyone's perspective. We need to listen and, and learn from each other, because there's a, lot, there's a lot of challenges, and we don't have a lot of time with some of them. And we feel like it's kind of an all-hands moment, and we just need everyone's help. We don't want to marginalize mm -hmm. anybody. I think that, you know, I see the anxiety, and I've seen it at high levels for a long time on issues of climate change, only because, you know, those of us who, who look at the science and listen to scientists really recognize that, that the risks are very large and, and the, con the consequences are extreme, and the time we have to actually address this is increasingly shorter. The more you look at the science and the rate of change that we're seeing, the, the more you get anxious about it. You know, it, it, but 
one of the conversations I continue to have with folks on this is, I don't disagree with their anxiety, um, but it doesn't allow you to shortcut the process. No, even if you wanted to, you just can't. But you have to be better at the early communication. You have to be better at making it relevant to individuals. You've got to be better at driving solutions before you demand action. You know, there's a lot of, of people in this country who uh, feel personally at risk because they're insecure in where their next foods food you know is going to come to feed their children. They're insecure in whether or not their job is going to continue or where they're going to get another job at an age, you know, at my age and older, where you don't want to be thinking about those things. Um, and when people are afraid, they look for change, but in many ways they don't want change <laughs> because they feel like every change makes it worse for them. It makes it more unstable and uncertain. And so you, you need to recognize that you're going you're gonna to have to keep pushing and plugging along, but the best thing you can do is actually what, what this school is doing, which is to take the solutions you're asking other people to adopt and do it yourself. Show them that it works and it can work. And as a country, we need to make sure that people aren't left behind in the solutions. You know, we can't allow people that claim solar re renewable energy is, is just for the elites. We have to find financial and economic vehicles to make it available and accessible to everybody. We can't, you know, fail to recognize that the coal sector is waning. And what do we do with human beings that are left behind there? I'm not going to cajole them by saying that renewable energy and clean energy isn't the future, because it is. And if I said anything different, it would be disingenuous, whether I'm sitting here or anywhere else. But you got to figure out as a country what you do with those communities and those individuals and those families to give them a path forward. Everybody deserves one but they don't deserve to be cajoled into thinking that someone on high is gonna bring that back for them. They deserve honesty and compassion and resources to help them get through difficult transitions. Um, that's, that's how we've done it before, and I don't know why we wouldn't want to do that again now. So there is a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of good reason to be depressed if you're paying attention these days, but what's giving you hope yeah. These days, what what do you find that um, you kind of latch on to that makes you feel hopeful? Well, there's a there's a lot of really good signs, and I, and I think one of the reasons why I'm really happy to be at you know college campuses is that I don't want the young people here to to fail to recognize how powerful they are and their voice is, and how hopeful I am that solutions for these problems are available to us today and that we can continue to drive forward no matter what the attitude is in, in Washington. You know, prior to the Obama administration, there were, there were literally no steps taken at the federal level on climate change. I know that, that many of the students here only remember the Obama administration and slightly before it, but they can't think 
that the federal government is the be-all and end-all of what's who speaks for the United States of America and who takes action. Because when I was growing up, it was individual communities in individual states. It took many years for us to drive momentum at the federal level for federal laws to be enacted to protect air and water. And in the meantime, we didn't sit around. We, we just did things. We took action. So right now, I know that the clean energy train in the United States left, has left the station. It's not going back. There are remarkable innovations every day. If you look at what's happening, not just in clean energy in the utility sector, but look at the transportation sector. It's now the, the highest greenhouse gas emitting sector in the United States, now that we're continuing to reduce in the utility sector. And it looks like it's on the cusp of unbelievable transformation with autonomous electric vehicles, with Volvo just making an announcement that in just a few years they're getting out of the internal combustion engine. Can you imagine that? It's just remarkable what I see happening. And I don't want your students or anyone out there to think that when the federal government is taking a pass and napping for a while that the United States has to be sleeping. It is so not. And so uh, people have to, you know, do what they can to reconcile themselves to speak up as much as they can if they don't like what the federal government is doing. But the most important thing is for them to work in their own communities, work in their own families, work in their own states, take advantage of the tremendous opportunities for consumers to get cheap energy, think creatively, do science, do innovation, because it's going to continue the progress moving forward. And if this administration does roll back some big protections that we've had in place, people won't tolerate it. It'll come back. Um, but it, it's discouraging and it's uncertain, but it is far less from being hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> We're just in the early stages of this right now. And I remain tremendously hopeful, especially when I meet the young people of today who, who sort of get it way before any of us ever did, that's for sure. Great. So I have one final question for you. I was just curious what you're up to these days, and more importantly, what's exciting you and your current work? Yeah. Well, I'm doing a lot of work with a, a bunch of constituents just to keep an eye on what's going on in Washington, D.C., because I do have 15,000 people who I love there, and the agency is really at significant risk right now, and I just want to make sure people understand that risk and the protections that we need, all of us, to work to maintain. I've been at Harvard doing a couple of fellowships, uh, one at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School and the other at the Harvard School of Public Health. I am likely to be continuing that relationship in the fall. They're interested in continuing to explore what I love, which is the intersect between health and climate. I want to make sure we're making the case in the strongest terms possible so people can relate to the challenge and, and start embracing those solutions more readily. Um, and I'm also working as an advisor to a uh, private equity company that focuses on sustainability. It's called Pegasus Capital Advisors. They're a wonderful group of people who are looking at new technologies and new solutions and, and what's ready and on the cusp of being more broadly disseminated so that we can get some additional sustainability uh, initiatives moving forward and technologies out there that will improve our lives in so many different ways. So 
I'm excited about the work I'm doing, and I'm giving lots of speeches so that everybody knows that if I'm not ticked off about what's going on and it was my work and many others' hard work that produced it, they have no right to give up. <laughs> they have to get over it and, and move forward. Well, Gina McCarthy, thank you so much for coming to Appalachian State and Boone, North Carolina. And um, we're just so happy to have you here. And um, yeah, thanks again. Lee, thank you for all you do and for all that the students are doing. It's quite a remarkable place, and I couldn't be happier. Find Your Sustainability is a production of the University Communications Department at Appalachian State. It's hosted by our Director of Sustainability, Dr. Lee Ball. The show is produced by Troy Tuttle and Megan Hayes. Dave Blanks records, edits, and mixes. Pete Montalti and Alex Waterworth are our web team. Find more episodes of this and other interesting podcasts at AppalachianMagazine.org or check us out on iTunes. Just search for Appalachian State University under podcasts.